Well, good morning. I'm glad you're here today. Uh, these lessons have been a real interesting, different type of thing to write. Uh, I hope that you're finding them useful and, and, and a blessing in your life. It is important to me that we take orthodoxy, which is, is what the church has understood through the Holy Spirit and through leadership and through thinking and through history to be true about God and true about Christ and true about the Spirit and true about His body. It's taking orthodoxy. And because it's, orthodoxy is something that's always been, uh, uh, it, it, by definition, it's historical. It's what the historical church has recognized to be the fundamental truths of, of the faith. Because it's historical, it's always going to be in an older thought mode, in an older culture, in an older language. And I think it is the responsibility of each generation to take orthodoxy and to restate it in the language and the thought culture of the day. That's not only important for us who live today, but it's especially important for the generation that follows us. They need to understand it in the freshest language possible. So y'all have been most kind in helping me do this. We've got uh, this lesson this week. Uh, uh, our family will be gone the next two weeks, and Pastor Trammell will be filling in and teaching the next two weeks. And then we'll be back, and I'll email you before we get back so you'll know that we're resuming this series because it's my hope that you'll bring some more people um, uh, of any age and uh, have them uh, get a chance to listen to this as well. So, with that background, let's get into this morning. Reality and the truth of God, or in the God of truth. Reality and the God of truth. Here is my, my uh, synopsis. If you think that you alone can determine truth, then your God is still too small. If you think that you alone in your brain can figure out what's true or what's not true, then your God is still too small. Let me tell you uh, uh, a movie that came out that I really enjoyed. If you've not seen it, uh, I recommend you watch it. It was called The Truman Show. How many of you have seen The Truman Show? Okay, most of you know it then. Here's the plot in essence. It's kind of a takeoff reality TV and some things like that. But from the time Truman, who's played by Jim Carrey, is in his mother's womb... A reality show about his life is put on TV. And Truman never is told he's living a reality show. But his birth, his childhood, his adolescence, his maturing into an adult, all of it takes place on this massive production set that's covered by a dome. So the weather is, is regulated. The stars in the sky are really just big spotlights and they're regulated. The horizon is painted on. The entire set is, is, is not only uh, uh, controlled by the producer and director, but everybody that interacts with Truman know that they're on a reality show and they're all getting paid as actors to do that. It's just Truman never realizes it. Never realizes it that his wife is really just an actress who's being paid to be married to him. Never realize. oh, he did fall in love and actually a woman who fell in love with him. They had to take that woman off of the show because they were afraid uh, that, that she might reveal the truth. Now, as... Truman turns 30, he starts to have suspicions that what seems to be the real world may not be the real world. Various things happen. He's a happy-go-lucky guy, the world seems great, but he starts realizing he's seeing some of the same people in different places, sometimes dressed up differently. And then there's the time where the spotlight falls from the production ceiling... And he's thinking, you know, there's new meaning to a falling star. So the director into his microphone sends an actor over who's got an earpiece to explain to Jim Carrey, oh, that's one of the landing lights from an airplane that flew overhead that just fell off. Of course, Jim Carrey doesn't travel. They, they, they deter him from traveling at a very young age by teaching him that traveling just gets you in trouble. His dad died traveling. 
So he's, he's, he's uh, uh, indoctrinated not to want to go anywhere. So he, he finally decides this is not real and uh, in the dead of night sneaks out, gets a sailboat and sails to the end of the world, which is the painted set at the end of the scenery and the boat pokes a hole in it. And he climbs stairs that he finds there and he gets out at the door. In case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening and good night. And he goes forth at the age of 30 into the real world, having left the world he knew forever. Now, this movie has been written up and used as a subject in a lot of essays and a lot of, of, of uh, different writings because it speaks to some issues that actually are very important. What is real? What really is true? Is this world real? Are the relationships that we have real? Do our actions matter? What is reality and what is truth? Those are huge questions. And they didn't just arise with Jim Carrey and that movie. Those questions have been around as long as man has been around. What is truth, and more importantly, in a sense, not more importantly, but just as important, how do we know what truth is? Those are questions I want us to talk about today. Now, these are old questions. And if you go to school and you study philosophy, you will study these questions and they'll have really big, wonderful, marvelous names. You will be studying metaphysics for what is truth. You will be studying epistemology for how do we know what truth is. I'm not worried about this. You're not going to get a test on those big words. Set them aside. Don't let them scare you off from learning the ideas and the questions that are posed here. That's what I care about. Let me tell you why. We can go back in time. Let's go back to Plato. Plato was asking this question. And in Plato's writings, he actually has it in a dialogue with Socrates and, and uh, like a cousin or something of Plato. And so the, the question, though, that, that's being addressed is what is truth? What is real? Now, you may be sitting there and there's Mrs. Leone. Henrietta Leone sitting right there, and she may be saying, well, truth is just everything around us. It's what we see. Plato wasn't happy with that. Plato said, no, no, no. If you want to know what's really real, not just what's real, but what's really real are not the things we see. It's the ideas the int, not ideas, that's not a fair word. Uh, it, it, he uses a Greek word that we get idea from, but it's, it's the things that we see intellectually. Now, that may not mean anything to you. And I don't think it meant anything to a lot of people. So Plato told a story, and stories help us understand. So I want to tell you Plato's story. Thanks to my wife for drawing it. It's the story of the cave. Plato says, if you want to know what's real, imagine some man that's been chained to a uh, chained where all he can see is the wall of a cave. And he's been chained that way since he was born. He's never been able to turn his head. He can't move his body. All he can see and all he's ever seen his entire life is this wall of a cave. Behind the man, we'll put it right here where this is, there's a fire. So you got the fire here where our projector is. You got the man who is chained looking at the wall of a cave. And then somebody walks between him, his back, and the fire. Now, the man chained, he can't see that person walking between his back and the fire, right? Can't turn his head. He can only look forward. But he will see the shadow on the wall. For that man, the prisoner chained, 
that shadow that he sees will be all that is real. And he might even believe, oh, hi, there's that real thing. But that shadow is nothing more than a shadow of something he cannot see. And what he cannot see is the real thing. So Plato had this idea that there are, and in English they translate it forms, but that's not a fair translation either, and they know that, so they always capitalize it. This is Plato's theory of forms. If you do ever run across it in a test, now you got it. What Plato said is, is let's, take, um, let's take this table. Okay, we've got a table here. And you know that's a table, and I know that's a table. But you have a table at home too, don't you? How many of you have a dining table or a kitchen table that you eat on? Does it look exactly like this table? No. But they're both tables. How can they both be tables if they're different? Because there's some unseen tableness concept or form that they both carry. And this is not a real table, and neither is your table at home. Oh, they're real. But what's really real is this idea of tableness that gives meaning to both of those. This is a table, but it's different than that. But that idea of tableness is something that they share. So this is what Plato said. He says, you want to know what's real? It's not the stuff you see. It's the intellectual idea, the form. And he says, those, they go on forever. A table today is what a table was in Plato's time, even though the actual physical tables may change. That form of a table, that's divine, that's eternal, that never ends. That's what Plato thought was true. Now, let's shift from Plato, who's about 400 B.C. in Western thought, coming from Greece. Let's go over to Asia and to China. Fourth century B.C., Changzhou. Changzhou, we have the writings of Changzhou, and in chapter 2 of those writings, you can read about Changzhou. He lays down, he's, he's dreaming, and in his dream, he's a butterfly, just flitting and floating about, so happy with life. Then he wakes up, and Changzhou asks this question Am I a man who dreamt I was a butterfly, or am I a butterfly now dreaming that I'm a man? What is reality? Come on, let's just take a poll. How many of you in your life have ever even remotely for just a moment asked the question, what if this isn't all real? What if I am dreaming all of this? Anybody? Okay, you in Changzhou. You got good lineage behind you. That's a legitimate question. Chang Zhu asked that question, am I a man who dreamt I was a butterfly or am I a butterfly now dreaming I'm a man? Pilate, has this renegade Jew brought before him with the accusation that this renegade Jew parades himself about as a king. Ergo, Pilate, that's treason, you should put him to death. So Pilate has the renegade Jew brought before him. And says to the renegade Jew, are you king of the Jews? To which Jesus says, you say that. You say I'm a king. Because the way Pilate said it was, you're the king of the Jews, huh? You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born. For this purpose I've come into the world. Not to be king of the Jews, but to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Now, all of a sudden, Jesus has just really turned that conversation upside down. Pilate just wants to know, hey, are you, are you the king of the Jews? That's what they say. Is, is that right? And Jesus has said, I'm the voice that's come into this world to bear witness to truth. And everyone who listens to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate, are you listening to the truth? What is truth, Pilate? Pilate's response is that. Ah, what's truth? Get him out of here. I don't see any problem with him. What is truth? It's a legitimate question that's been asked a long, long time. What's really real? 
All right. Now let's fast forward to Rene Descartes. Rene Descartes lived in the late, well, he was born 1596. He really did his writing in the 16th, 1600s, the 17th century. He was a French Catholic who um, tried to, this is at the time of Galileo, he tried to write some stuff that was part of this new intellectual enlightenment period. He's a father of rationalism and a father of the enlightenment. Here's what he's trying to do. He's trying to distinguish reality from other stuff. So, he says, I just, he, he's got a book uh, on meditations. It's six meditations where he goes through this stuff. Uh, you can find it at your local theological library if you're ever in the mood to read it. it uh, 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 you get it off Amazon.com. You can wirelessly get it onto your Kindle for free. Okay? If you ever want to. So it's not long. So here's what Descartes said. He said, I set myself to decide what's real and what's not. He said, I found out that a lot of the stuff I thought was real was not real. I believed a lot of things as a kid that now that I'm an adult, I know were not true. So I want to know that I'm only believing true things. I don't want to believe anything false. I only want to believe things that are true. How many of you would echo that? I only want to believe true things. How many of you would also agree that when you were a kid, you believed things that you've since found out are not true? Okay. Then you're in Descartes' shoes. So Descartes said, now here's the thing. I'm going to examine every belief I've got to figure out if it's true or not. The problem is, I hold so many beliefs about so many things, that's going to take forever. He did not use this illustration. This is my illustration. I hope he's not rolling over in his grave, frankly. I think it's a pretty good illustration and he should have used it. But I can't boss him around. He's dead. It's kind of like this. If I want to know if every leaf on this tree is true or false, I can go leaf by leaf and pluck them and examine them. But if I know that the trunk of the tree is false, then everything that grew out of that trunk is false, and it's a whole lot easier just to chop down the whole tree than to pick it leaf by leaf. I'm not going to go belief by belief that I have and decide whether those beliefs are true or not. I'm just going to throw everything away. Everything, and I'm going to start with nothing except my mind. The Latin for this would be a tabula rasa. The idea that my mind is a blank slate. Now that's not what had historically been held. Historically the idea was God has put or something has put ideas in your mind that you grow up to understand and develop and things like this. He says, no, 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 no. I want my mind to be a blank slate and I'm going to work simply off of that. So let's get rid of the tree. Let's get rid of everything. And I am going to doubt absolutely everything. That's meditation one. I will not accept anything to be true. I'm going to start doubting everything. He uses later on in his book an illustration of honeycomb. He says, if you go and grab honeycomb straight from the hive, he says, it's got a feel to it. He says, if you thump it in the right places, it makes sound. You can still smell the flowers in the honey. You can taste it. And it tastes sweet. It's firm to the feel. Now, we've just named all five senses. It's firm to touch. It smells like flowers. It tastes like honey. It makes a sound. And you can visually see it in the form that it is. So your senses might tell you, hey, here's a honeycomb. Or here's wax. The problem is, if you happen to be saying that and walking around and you get real close to a fire, the fire will melt that wax. And you won't be able to hold it because it will burn you. And it will no longer have the form that it had. And in the fire, the smell, the odor evaporates. And in the fire, the taste is burned away. And you can take that liquid, gooey, melted wax and thump it with your hand all you want, but it won't reverberate and make the noise. 
all five of your senses that told you it was wax because of what it looked, smelled, tasted, sounded like, and felt like, were lying to you. Because if you really wanted to know what wax was, you weren't going to know it by what it looked like, sounded like, tasted like, or smelled like. You were only going to know it intellectually. So he says, I'm doubting everything. But one thing I can do, I can doubt. And if I'm doubting, then I'm thinking. I can't, I've got to be thinking something. I'm able to change my mind. I'm able to say what was real is not real anymore. I'm thinking, so I must be real. Kogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. Ever heard that? That was Rene Descartes. I think, so I must exist. I got to be real. What's real? I don't know anything's real. I've decided nothing's real. I'm going to doubt that anything in the whole world is real because I can't trust my senses. So the only thing that I'm going to accept is what I can figure out is real. And I'm thinking and figuring it out, so i got to be real. I'm not so sure about you, but I'm real. You might be a dream, but I'm real. I think, therefore I am. Now, I will tell you one of my favorite jokes. Sorry, this is a timeout. So he walks into his neighborhood saloon, and it's near closing hour, and he gets a drink, and he pops it back. His name's Rene Descartes, so the bartender says, Rene, would you like another one? He says, yeah, pops it back. Bartender says, you know, Rene, we're about to close the, the, the saloon or the bar. Um, would you like one last drink before we close it? Descartes said, I I think not, and poof, he disappeared. I think, therefore, I am. I think not, poof, he disappeared. Okay, never mind. So, he says, now, what he does is from there, he starts building blocks, and he builds from that point. Okay, I think, therefore, I am. Now, what else can be real? And he tries to construct all the way to the reality of God and the immortality of the soul. Now, the people who followed him disputed his logic on reaching the existence of God and the immortality of the soul. But they loved his method. The idea that we'll start from our brain and only what we can establish to be true will we accept. Nothing else. We doubt everything except what we can put together. Math, 2 plus 2 is 4. We'll accept that. But we're going to doubt anything we don't have adequate proof for. And by adequate proof, it's got to logically build brick by brick, block by block on our brains. That's why he's called the father of modern rationalism. And I think if I took a poll, most of us in this auditorium might say, you know, that's not a bad approach. Keeps us from buying into superstition. Let's just build logically. The problem is, it doesn't work. Nick Bostrom, 1973 to present. I figure the odds of him watching this on the internet are pretty, 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 pretty small. So just for grins, how many of you have ever heard of Nick Bostrom? Okay, Nick, don't get your feelings hurt. Nobody. Nick Bostrom would tell you, hey, I got an idea. Maybe, maybe we're all a computer program. Ha, 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 we say. That's silly. Here's his reasoning. If mankind lives long enough, mankind will certainly develop a computer that's able to have consciousness within itself. And if man can develop a computer that has consciousness within itself, then man will likely choose to run a computer simulation where the computer goes back and experiences what life would be like if you lived in the year 2012. And we may be that computer consciousness 
those bits and pieces of the program running in that computer in the distant future. Now you're saying he's a crackpot. He's not a crackpot. He's a professor of philosophy at Oxford University. He's one of the top thinkers in the world. And this is not something he just said over drinks one night. This is something he published in Philosophical, Philosophical Quarterly. Our son, who is at Oxford, also a philosophy student and, and teacher at Oxford, our son told me on the phone recently, he says, Dad, it's amazing. There are some professors at Oxford who assign as much as a 35% likelihood that Bostrom is right. There are a number of professors who say, I'd say one out of three chance Bostrom is dead on were computer simulations. Now, why does this matter? Why can't we just say, oh, those are goofballs? We'll just live our lives and take care of business. What is true and how we figure out what is true is very important to all of us. Let me tell you why. Did you know over the last three years, I've gotten more times than I can count an email showing me this picture? These are giant bones, depending upon the email. Sometimes they seem to, they were discovered in Greece. Sometimes the email is said Saudi Arabia. But some of the emails say, look, there's proof that there was a Samson. There were giants, the Nephilim worked the earth. Genesis 6-1 has been proven by archaeology. Because here are these massive bones. Now, do you know what? These pictures won a Photoshop contest where the question was, how can you manipulate a photo to make it look like this is real when it's not? This is Photoshop. This isn't true, and it's not real. It's manufactured. Say, okay, well, I know stuff I get on the internet's probably fake. And I reckon that. I've got a friend in this class who sends me fake stuff on the internet all the time. And I always email him back, this is fake. And I suspect as the political season heats up, we'll get more and more fake stuff on the internet from both sides of the aisle. Let me give you another idea. You ever watch TV? Did you know you can watch TV and you can subtly be told that it's normal for a couple to live together before they're married? A woman who came to uh, Becky's and my wedding was just talking to us at the reception. Was just astonished that we had not lived together before we got married. She couldn't believe it. Because on TV, that's what happens. On TV, people sleep with other people outside of marriage with no guilt. On TV, you can have a massive problem and it can be resolved in 40 minutes. And you can just start wondering, well, isn't that normal? Isn't that real? What's wrong with me? It takes Becky and I 45 minutes to resolve our major problems. Are we slow? There's a book called Nudge I urge everyone to read. Nudge is written by some social scientists who talk about the way your behavior and my behavior is being nudged in certain directions by things we don't see and, and things we don't think about. The example I find most interesting is the buffet line. There, I, I, I always gravitate to the food. There, there are studies that indicate that in a buffet line, you have a tendency to take more of the early items in the line and less of the later items. As a result, the buffet owners put the cheaper stuff at the front and the stuff that's more expensive at the end. Have you ever been to a buffet where the first thing you get when you have an empty plate is the prime rib station? Hey, fill this puppy up. 
No, you don't get to the prime rib till you've dumped a bunch of salad, you've dumped potatoes and green beans, you've dumped all this stuff, and then when they add that thin slice of prime rib, it just barely fits on the plate. And you just think you're in a buffet line. You don't realize someone has orchestrated that line to manipulate your behavior. Do you honestly think red jello cubes are the first thing you should eat in a line? Let me give you another reason it matters. We may not be the last generation on earth. And if the philosophers at Oxford University can teach something and write on something, and if something can make its way into the movies, the Matrix, by the way, is different than Bostrom's idea. And the Matrix, we're all living bodies that happen to be tapped for our electronic potential by the computers who are running a program through our brains. The Matrix. Set that aside. That's probably not as real as Bostrom's. But if these guys are teaching it at the... Oxford is the top philosophical, top-rated philosophy school in the English-speaking world. And this man teaches there. And is recognized as one of the 100 foremost leaders on human potential in the world. It's going to filter down. And we need to be aware of it. Because we need to have our voices speaking out on these issues just as much. See, here's the problem with Descartes. And here's the problem with the idea that my brain is going to figure out all truth. And I'm only going to accept the truth that's in my brain. The problem with that, I've got three I'll give you. There are more, but here are my three problems. Number one, your mind is not flawless. And neither is mine. And if you're only going to believe the truth that you can construct in your mind, you better recognize right now, you will never have a hold of the truth. Descartes tried. And Descartes thought he built all the way up to the existence of God and the immortality of the soul. But the people who came after him pointed out flaw after flaw after flaw in his logic. So they accepted his methodology, how he did it, Doubt everything, only build what's logical. But they pointed out the flaws in his logic, so there is no God. The problem wasn't just his logic. The problem is if his logic is bad, it shows the method is bad as well. Number two, your mind is limited by preconceptions. You can have the most perfect, flawless logic in the world. But you will still be limited by where you live, what your culture is, and how you think. And if you don't think you are, if you truly believe you can be a Descartes and doubt everything, you're only considering half of the equation because that's just negating everything. It's not taking into account the positives. Descartes did not take into account computers. He was writing in the 1600s. It never occurred to him he might be a computer simulation a la Nick Bostrom. Because his mind was limited by what he had. You can't just get rid of negatives and think, I'm only going to build positive things. That is not accurate. It doesn't logically work. You're in a logical conundrum. Let me give you a third one. There are some truths that you, with modern technology, everything we've got at our disposal, there are some you still won't know the answer to. Higgs boson was discovered, the God particle. Well, it's not a God particle. Go back and listen to our earlier lessons on particles. And that's wonderful. If Higgs boson is there, it's another thing God's put there for us to understand how his universe works. But here's the point. No scientist who's working on that project would ever say, well... There's no point in looking for the Higgs boson particle because I don't know it exists. And I'm only going to accept as true things I know. (laughs) No. That's kind of a bozo idea for a scientist. Let me ask you this. Do you know, to the number, how many stars are in the heavens? Anybody? No. And neither do the scientists. Does that mean 
That there must not be a number of stars in the heaven because we don't know it? Well, of course it doesn't mean that. It means that there are truths that we just don't know. So to say I'm only going to accept as true those things that I can construct in my brain is not acceptable. It's not logical. It's not rational. So let me suggest to you a biblical perspective. And see if the... Here's, here's my test case for, for some of this stuff. I'm not saying the Bible then, oh, let's just reject what's rational and let's be illogical. Oh, no. I think rationality and logic have their place. But they need to be in their place. When I was in third grade, I rode the bus to Vollmer Elementary. I had a place on the bus, but it wasn't behind the steering wheel. Logic has a place, but you keep it in its place. Rationality has a place, but you keep it in its place. My faith is not built on some blind leap with no knowledge whether or not there'll be something to catch me. But neither is my faith built simply upon the logic that I'm able to put together with my brain from a blank slate. That logic gets you nowhere. So what I want to know is, is does this biblical perspective do a better job at explaining why things are the way they are than a non-biblical model? And I think that it does. What does the Bible say about how we think and what's true and what's real? Well, let's start with the mind. The Bible says that we have a fallen and a limited mind. We have a wonderful mind. God made Adam and Eve. God told man to name the animals. And whatever man named the animals, that was their name. Man had the ability, God created the animals, but Adam created the names. Man has an ability to, to, to name things, to take dominion, to think, to be creative. Man has an ability to process material. Man has an ability to learn. Man has an ability to be deceived. All of that's in the Genesis story. The Genesis story also goes on to say that man falls from its, his Eden, his utopia with God. And as a result, all of us who were in Adam have fallen as well. And so we have some limitations in our mind because of this sin. Paul says it this way in Romans 1, 18 through 28. If we can go to the Elmo, please. In Romans 1, 18 through 28, Paul says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. Suppress the truth. As Pastor Fleming said this morning, our sin can prohibit us in our prayer life and in our devotional life and in our growth before God and doing what's right. Unrighteousness can suppress the truth. So you have sinful man suppress the truth. What can be known about God is plain to them. God's shown it to them. His invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, they've been clearly perceived ever since the world was made. So they're without excuse. Because even though they knew God, they didn't honor him as God. They didn't give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. They claimed to be wise, but they became fools. God gave them up. To the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Truth is important here as we see it. Truth is important. Our minds and our sin mean we don't readily understand and accept the truth. We can go further. Look at what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. The word of the cross is foolish to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it's God's power. For it's written, 
I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The discernment of the discerning I'll thwart. So who is the wise one? Who's the learned man? Who's the debater? Hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of the world? In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God. The world did not know God through wisdom. You can think all you want, but you will not know God simply through your own constructed mind because our minds are fallen and we're impaired by sin. Who has not experienced an ability to rationalize sin in their life and do it? All of us have. If you've overeaten one time, you have, glutton. So our minds aren't, aren't good enough to get to truth, ultimate truth. Oh, they're good enough to deceive us, make us think we're wise. But that's the foolishness. What else does the Bible say? Well, the Bible not only has that, but the Bible says that as a result, revelation is important. Now, these classes, I didn't just like throw these things together week by week. Hey, wonder what I'm going to do this week. These have been built on each other. And our last class was how we are language-driven people. And doesn't it make sense if we're language-driven people, God would communicate to us in language. Now let's take it a step further. Revelation is important because it's how we will get insight into truth that we would not get otherwise. If we continue in 1 Corinthians and look at chapter 2, Paul says... When I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and trembling. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit of, and of power. Fits well with Pastor Fleming's sermon this morning. That your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Your faith I can't wait till we get to the class where I get to argue to you, my jury, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because I think it is the most believable thing you can find that you didn't live through. But that's a few weeks from now. The point here is, it's not simply wisdom. The power of God is at work. It's going to help us understand. It's going to give us faith. Paul says, among the mature, we impart wisdom. It's just not a wisdom of this age or culture or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. It's a secret wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. And none of the rulers of this age understood it. If they had, do you think Pilate, if Pilate had understood the truth, would he have let Jesus be crucified? He wouldn't. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. The Spirit searches everything. Who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit? So who's going to understand the thoughts of God except the Spirit? So we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And the natural person won't accept them. They're foolish. Because you can't understand them if they're spiritually discerned without the Spirit. So, if we go back to the PowerPoint, Revelation, it's important. God's got to reveal truth to us. We can't just build it out of our brain. Now, you might be saying, well, that seems kind of circular then. I've got to accept that it's true before I believe that it's true so that I'll believe that it's No, it's not circular at all. It's saying we can weigh this rationally and we can think about this logically, but we can't come to it simply off of our brains. We need to look at history. We need to look at revelation. We need to look what others have said. We need to consider these things. Which brings us to that ultimate question, what is truth? In Hebrew, the word for truth is emet. Emet. And it means not just something that's academically accurate. It means something that's stable, something that's firm, something that's reliable, something you can lean on without it breaking or falling away. It's something real. 
The Greeks had an idea of truth, aletheia. Aletheia, the word for truth, it, it, it denotes, more so than the Hebrew, it denotes the idea of intellectual truth. But John writes his gospel interweaving the Hebrew and the Greek. And he does so in such a marvelous manner as we talked about several weeks ago. In John 14, this is what the word is that John's using as he relates the conversation Jesus had with his apostles right before his death. John 14, Jesus says, don't be troubled, believe in God, believe in me. By the way, in Hebrew, the word believe is, a, is another form of that same word of, of truth. Trust. It's something you can rely on, something that's stable, something that's firm. So have your truth in me. Have your truth in God. You might forget uh, uh, amet means truth. Uh, we get the word amen from it. Amen. May it be true. In Jesus' name, amen. That's Hebrew for truth, okay? Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If not so, what I've told you, I go to prepare a place. And if I'm going to prepare a place, I'll come again and take you. So where I am, there you may be. Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. How are we supposed to know where we're going to go? We don't know where you're going. Which road do we take? We don't know the way. Bless his heart. Jesus said, I am the road. I am the hodos, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And you see truth used by John in his gospel and in his epistles more so than any other New Testament writer, more so than anybody else in the Bible writing, because he understood Jesus was the truth. What is truth? Truth's not what you and I build up in our brain. It's not. Your brain didn't go go there. Truth is something that's outside of us. It's God. The question is not, oh, what is truth? The question is, who is truth? And truth is not on trial here today. And it's not on trial in the life of man. Because truth exists, and it's God, and it's real, whether we accept it or not. The only thing on trial here is you and me. What are we going to do with the truth? I don't believe the truth. I don't believe... You know, we're, we're like uh, uh, the last battle, C.S. Lewis's last chronicle of Narnia, where the people, uh, uh, he sets them free from the stable, and he gives them this sumptuous banquet. And some who are enjoying it still think they're in the stable. Well, this is horrible, stable food. We're eating dung. We're eating refuse. When Aslan has prepared this whole feast for them because they won't live in reality. The ones who are living in darkness are the ones who think they construct reality with their own brain. Instead of understanding that God is at work, Romans 12, to renewing our minds to help us understand true truth, which is Jesus Christ. And you want your ethics, you won't get them on TV, you'll get them from Jesus. And you want to know how to live, you won't get it on TV, you'll get it from Jesus. And you want to know what to do with your problems, you won't get it on TV, you'll get it from Jesus. And it's not that it's illogical, it's the most logical thing in the world. Because it is the consistent word of God that is stable and firm and will never, ever go away. It's the firmest foundation you can build any house on. And it makes perfect sense because it explains how... We know. I love the Benedictine monk Anselm of Canterbury. He lived 500 and plus years before Descartes. I wish Descartes had just said, hey, whatever he said, I agree with. Anselm of Canterbury said, I do, nor do I seek to understand so that I can believe. I'm not trying to get my brain figuring it out so that I can have belief. I believe so my brain can figure it out. And I'm not leaving my brain behind. But it's through reading and understanding and learning about Jesus that we find truth. And we're able to say, hey, that makes sense. That is truth. I believe that unless I first believe, I won't understand. Without faith, you're not going to understand. It just doesn't work. 
If you think you alone can determine truth, your God is still too small because you will never get there. Do you honestly think that anyone on their own can sit there and think through logically brick by brick and just construct from the world the doctrine of the Trinity? We only have that because we've tried to understand what revelation has taught us. We, we're not going to understand the depths of God by building on this brain. Absent revelation, we do not have a hope of finding truth. But in revelation, we find truth that our brains will confirm and our hearts will confirm because it makes sense and God renews our mind. And that's reality and the God of truth. Three quick points for home. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. Knowing what is real gives you a liberty and a freedom in life you won't have anywhere else. But the implication of this is, is the truth is important. It has ramifications. So let's seek the truth. Point two. Jesus said, I am the road. I am the truth. I am the life. So the ultimate question for me is not what is truth. It's what am I going to do with the truth? Final, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. You want to hold up your trousers? Though he wasn't talking about holding up trousers, but he's talking about a belt that kept his tunic in line. Truth is not only important for what it gives you, but it's important for how it protects you. You live your life without truth. And you've built your house on shifting sand. And you won't handle the storms. Would you pray with me? Lord, we ask your blessings on our lives and on our hearts. We ask you to minister to us, make your truth real. Lord, we're not looking for um, a senseless, emotional experience. We need you to really reach down in your spirit and enlighten our hearts. Enlighten our minds. Help us to see you for who you are. And to build our lives around that truth. In Jesus' name, amen.